As you know, we are in the midst of a series, Living in the Last Days While Waiting for Jesus. This is 2 Thessalonians, and as we've told you, 2 Peter coming up. Next two weeks, we're going to take just a brief interruption in the series, do a couple of topical messages, um, some things that the elders have been talking about recently just in terms of our celebration of the ordinances, the uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and tying that into membership, and want to just address those things over the course of the next couple of weeks from Scripture. So um, we'll be praying for that, and we'll give you some passages ahead of time as well to think about as we do in the weekly email. 179 years ago this month of October, you're thinking, what could possibly have happened 179 years ago? There was a movement called Millerism that was prevalent throughout the Northeast, and it was at fever pitch in this month of October in 1844. Now, Millerism came from a preacher in New England named William Miller, who, through his extensive studies, came to the conclusion that Jesus was returning somewhere between March of 1843 and March of 1844. It was based on a, a Jewish calendar and his reckoning of Old Testament prophecy. And his teachings spread rapidly, first in the Northeast, New York State, and then up into New England, but also with the help of another preacher began publishing his works. And at one point in May of 1843, by that point, um, his works were being published at the rate of 21,000 copies a week and being distributed. Now, in 1843, that was no small task to do. So Millerism was spreading widely. People who had traveled from other countries to New York and Boston and other areas of the Northeast heard about it and took it back. And so there were reports of these predictions being thought about and pondered in England and Canada, even in Australia. When March of 1844 came and went, William Miller apologized, acknowledged that he had made an error, still believed in the imminent return of Christ, and there were others who continued to try to build on what he had taught. In that summer of 1844, at a tent meeting in New Hampshire, another preacher claimed that Miller had just missed a few prophetic insights and that what actually would happen is that Jesus was coming in the seventh month of that Jewish calendar year. And he was even more specific, said October 22nd, 1844. By late September of that year, even those who had followed Miller before and had heard the wrong prediction um, came on board with this idea of October 22nd, 1844. It was widely embraced, and they began preparing for the return of Jesus Christ. And there were, you may have read about this, multiple reports, even in publications like the New York Tribune at the time that told stories of people who sold their possessions, who sold their houses, who gave things away, who abandoned businesses, and who prepared to don their white robes and be ready for the return of Christ on that day. You and I know this didn't work out for them. If you go into Wikipedia and look up, you will find what's called the Great Disappointment. That's, that's what that was called after Millerism. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll tie this into what we're looking at this morning. We're finishing the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica, and it finishes with a rather stern rebuke. These have been both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, letters that have been largely encouraging, mildly correcting in places, 
um, very much assuring. But in this last section, he is strongly denouncing a kind of behavior that he has heard about that is being practiced in and around Thessalonica amongst professing believers. And, and it's very possible the unruly activity that he's dealing with had something to do with misunderstanding of the end times, had to do with, with how people were engaging about their belief in the return of Jesus Christ and how they were thinking they should respond to that. Now, we have already seen that some kind of counterfeit letter, something that Paul referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2.2 as a, a counterfeit had spread and, and that it had made these claims that, that essentially had the Thessalonians believing that Jesus had already returned and that things had somehow gone badly wrong for them, that somehow it was the day of the Lord and, and rather than having been rescued, they were now in the midst of this time of God pouring out his wrath and so the chaos and all that was happening around them was all representative of that. And so they are struggling with fear and that's why Second Thessalonians ultimately is at least in part, is written, is to help them, to reassure them that the day of the Lord and the return of Christ are still to come. This is how you are to live in light of that. And so that, that whole point of a, a potential counterfeit is why when we, when we read through these last few verses, you're going to see in verse 17 at the end, very end of the book, Paul emphasizes, I wrote this. This is my handwriting. He's, he's trying to emphasize authenticity here, that this is not a, a counterfeit. Um, but they are... They've been troubled by some wrong teaching that, that Paul has sought to correct, but facing persecution, struggling with what they've come to believe about the return of Jesus Christ, some of that may well have contributed to them acting a little like the 19th century Millerites in terms of how they were dealing with life and some of the decisions they were making. Uh, as I said last week, the final third of, of 2 Thessalonians, I think in some sense answers the now what question. Now that Paul has sort of retaught, because he says, I'm telling you things that I've, I've, I've told you before, now that he's kind of retaught them about um, the return of Christ and the day of the Lord, they are still living in the midst of this severe persecution. And so, in a sense, the question is, now what? How do we live as we're waiting for Jesus, and yet as we're living in this world where hatred of the gospel is rising and things are so difficult and painful, now what? Now what do we do? And we know that teaching about Christ's return is prevalent in the New Testament. The, the call for believers to anticipate the return of Christ is very much there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 speaks of living in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there are scriptures that that indeed speak to the church about having, a, having that hope, having that anticipation of our Savior returning. And so we are to be living with that, but we're still in a fallen world, surrounded by evil. So now what? Last week, we looked from chapter 2 into the early part of chapter 3 and saw what really is the positive exhortation. This is what you are to do. You are to to meditate on what God has already done and what he is doing. You're to, to revel in those things. You're to stand fast and, and hold to the traditions that you've been taught. Stand fast on, on the word of God. And then we saw last week, you are to continue to serve. You are to continue to be ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking it into that dark world. So that was the positive 
exhortation. This morning, we turn to the second part of the now what question, and it is very much a stern warning of this is what you should not be doing. So I want to read the whole section that we're going to look at, and then we'll go back through it in in different portions. But chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This last section and this strong word of condemnation of a kind of behavior is really bracketed by a couple of clear statements. First, in verse 6, when he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then essentially repeats that in verse 12, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. His point is to say, You're hearing me instruct you in this. I've instructed you about this before. I want you to know that this is not, this is not some personal preference on my part. This is not just Paul's sort of work ethic that I'm imposing on you. This is the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's about to say, and and he says it there at the end, this has been taught to you because it is what Jesus Christ commands of you. And so we have given you a model to follow. We've instructed you in this, but understand who the source of authority is in this. This is Christ's teaching to Christ's people. So here's how we're going to look at this passage. Three elements to it. The the command, what it is that he's talking about, how the command is broken, and then third, how the church responds to the breaking of the command. The command, the breaking of the command, and the church's response. The, The command, as he's already said, has been given to them previously when he was with them by instruction, but he reiterates it again. He's shown them an example, but now he says in verse 10, he sort of summarizes it in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. One of the things we know as believers in Jesus Christ, one of the themes that we see throughout the New Testament is that of stewardship, that of being faithful to use the resources and gifts and talents and abilities, all the things that God has blessed us with, has bestowed on us, using those things faithfully as servants of Jesus Christ, using them for his glory and for his purposes, seeking to serve God faithfully and glorify him in all things. And one of the ways we do that is by work, working to 
provide for our own needs. Colossians 3.23 reminds us that, that we do all things for the glory of God, but he even emphasizes in there just the, the, even the act of work. We should work as unto the Lord. Even our work should be a reflection of our, our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we are striving to honor and please him. And so part of faithful stewardship is taking whatever abilities and strength and talents and resources God has given me and using it both to honor him, but also part of honoring him then is putting food on the table and putting a roof over the, the head of myself and my family. That's, that's part of what he's describing here in this passage. The, the key, though, to the, to the command in verse 10 are the two words, not willing, those who are not willing to work. This is not an indictment of someone who is unable to work, either by age or some infirmity, some incapacity, whatever that may be. First uh, Timothy 5 makes it really clear that, that not everyone can work for his or her own sustenance. And, and that's where God's design then is that the family provide. First Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The, the context of that passage in First Timothy 5 is talking significantly about the care for widows, those who in particular are struggling to survive in a culture that is not friendly towards widows. But the principle is that the able-bodied heads of households, those who can work, must work and should provide for their household. That's God's command to us. That's the instruction given there in 1 Timothy. Paul says, um, we, we showed you this by our lives when we were with you. And let me read again verses 7 through 9 in our passage. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul saying, as an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, my primary Mission is to, to instruct, to teach, to exhort, to lead in the church. And because of that, I really could expect that my support, the, the provision of income for, for that ministry, would be from those that I serve. They would have the obligation to support that ministry. But he says, when we came to you, planting this church as new young believers, we didn't want there to be any confusion. We didn't want there to be any misunderstanding as to what Jesus instructs in terms of work. And so we worked hard in your midst. We worked night and day. We know from elsewhere in scripture that, that beyond his ministry, Paul did tent making, that, that there was work that, that Paul did to supply for himself. And he's saying here, we worked hard, we worked often to pay for our own food and lodging, to do everything we could so that there would be no misunderstanding about one's responsibility to work. And so that the Thessalonians would see and learn that a Christian who is able should be willing to work and to serve. In the first century, in cities like Thessalonica, the welfare system was not grounded in the government as we would know it today. The welfare system was grounded in the wealthy families of the community. And, and the, the process sort of was sort of codependent, if you will, in the sense that the, the poor relied on the generosity of the, wealth, uh, of the wealthy to help them, but the wealthy also got standing in the community by virtue of their generosity. They were looked up to for their care for the poor. So there was sort of benefit for both in that, in, in terms of being generous. Paul and Silas are careful to say, we didn't rely on that. 
We didn't ask for that. We came rather in a way that we taught you that this is God's design. You don't take advantage of another's generosity. If you're able to work, then do so. And in fact, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know from, from the book of Ephesians when Paul speaks about the when is a thief not a thief. It's not just that he stops stealing, but it's that he does what? He, he starts to work hard so that he has something to share. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, it's not simply work for the sake of putting stuff on my own table, but it's also I work because I'm gifted by God to now be generous to others. I work so that I can share with others and that I can help those who are in need. So all of that to say, that's the command. The command is if you're able to, then work. Commands being broken, verse six again. Now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. The portion about keeping away from we're gonna come back to, but there's a couple things I want you to see First of all, in this verse, that most translations use that word idleness in verse six and then idle again in verse seven and down in verse 11, idleness. The Greek word that Paul uses here doesn't necessarily have to be specifically isolated to idleness, the work of being perhaps lazy or slothful or however you want to look at it. The word really meant disorderly. It means they're living in an unruly way. They're walking in a way that is out of the order of God's design. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, our God is a God of order. He orders things by revealing his word, by giving us his will through his word and his law. We know God's order, his, his defined way of how he wants things done. And so when we violate that, we are walking in an disorderly way, in an unruly way. And that's really what Paul's saying here. It's, it takes the, the rest of the context, and, and we've seen it in the passage, to understand specifically what he means here. It's not just that they're generally being disorderly. It's that they are not working for themselves. They're not working to care for themselves. Instead, they're relying on others. It's the rest of the context here that helps us see that it's idleness. They are, in fact, distracting to others. Uh, if you look at verse 11 again, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, that's the same word, they're walking in an unruly way, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, same, same word, verse six, verse 11, they are walking in a disorderly way, but Paul's description here shows us that what's going on is they are, instead of being busy at work, they are busy sort of disturbing the peace of others. They are engaging in whatever gossip or whatever conversation that's really distracting others who are trying to do their work. They are being occupied with things that, that shouldn't occupy them when in fact they need to be putting food on their table. In, in verse 11 there, when he says busy and busy bodies, it's the same Greek root word twice. Um, it, it, it's the word ergon, and, and if you think of ergonomics, it's sort of the study of, of work, the efficiency in work, how things work and that they work in an efficient way. So it really is a, a term that gets down to work, and the point here is that instead of being busy doing the work that you should be doing, you are preoccupied with things that are not your business. This is a, 
sort of a, a follow-on to what he taught at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's apparently some issue with this in Thessalonica because in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 he said he urged them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. As believers, one of the things that should mark us is, is self-control. Instead of being all over the place and involved in all, all sorts of things that, that may or may not be part of the stewardship God has given us or a responsibility God has given us, we are to be faithful stewards who work hard and fulfill the things that we know God has called us to. Do the things that we are called to do that we see that are God's will. It, it, it's vital for us in thinking through this issue, especially of work, that we remember that it is God who ordained work. Even before the fall of man into sin, when God sets Adam in the garden in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Amen. Our God is a working God. He is a creating God. He is a sustaining God. He is a redeeming God. Um, and, and, and that we are made in his image means that we too are called to be a working God people to be engaged and to be busy doing the things he's called us to. So unless we are unable, we are made to work. Work was part of the creation that God described as being very good. And so we, we sometimes, I think, want to think of work as a sort of post-fall consequence. The, 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 the weeds and the, the, the toil certainly increased. There's certainly a change and a shift. But the gift of work is a gift. We are called to, to do that as we follow in the image of our creator and as a testimony of belonging to him. And so one of the great concerns with the sin of idleness is how it mars the believer's testimony. That's why the, 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 Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians 4 that you walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Um, that's why he is careful to go over and above in his own engagement when he is in Thessalonica to, to demonstrate to them that this is what we are called to do and, and he doesn't want to leave any room for the world to look upon believers and to look on a traveling preacher like himself and say, well, look at that lazy freeloader. He's just here to, to collect money from people. He's just taking from people. Rather, he's demonstrating to them, I'm, I'm working. I am supplying for myself. My ministry is to preach and to teach the word of God to you. And so followers of Jesus Christ should be hardworking people so that we can meet our own needs and share with others. But this command now is being broken. The, the motives may not be entirely clear. He doesn't say in the text, we can presume from what we've read that at least some of this is indeed a a consequence of wrong thinking about the end times, sort of the sense of why bother? Why, why keep working to, to acquire things when in fact Jesus is gonna return and, and I won't need any of this stuff, so maybe I don't need to work. Or it's certainly entirely possible that if you're a persecuted people being treated unjustly, part of your attitude becomes, why should I bother? Somebody's going to come and steal it away from me. I, I should just rely on other people's generosity. And some of it could just be mere laziness. Whatever it is, it's not clear from the text, but certainly we can presume some of those things in terms of their understanding of the end times. So let me turn to the church's response. Because that's really what the, the main reason Paul writes this is to say, church, brothers, 
Here's what I'm calling you to do in light of this. And you see that in verse 6. This is where he really begins and ends the section by talking to the brethren who are not committing this unruly behavior. Chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you've received from us. Please note, first, brothers, plural. He is speaking to the community, and he is he's going to be dealing with an area of unruly behavior, of persistent sinful behavior, and he's saying to the community, you, local church, have a responsibility to deal with this. Now, let's be really clear. Much sin is one person against another, and, and, and if we follow biblical guidelines, the, the presumption is that when there is one sin against another, there is conversation, there is uh, repentance, there is reconciliation, forgiveness, and the matter is settled. Unless we're talking about something that uh, there may be an exception due to the, uh, the heinous nature of the sin, for the most part, the circle of involvement remains tight. The, the, the person goes, pursues, and seeks to reconcile in order to win the brother back, and the matter is settled. But when sin is public, when sin in some way is jeopardizing the testimony of the church, when the sin is maybe not even public, but it is persistent and unrepentant, and the efforts to try to bring about repentance and reconciliation achieve nothing, then God often calls believers, plural, to get involved. Now, I'll just give you just kind of three reasons that I think of off the top of my head that, that I, I see the community involved in this. Protection, wisdom, and testimony. The, the first thing is that God involves the community for the protection against false accusations. But by, by bringing in other believers and seeking to have charges, accusations affirmed by other believers, it provides um, sort of a protection of those who either are going to see the sin in action, or they're going to ask questions, hopefully. They're going to engage. They're going to listen carefully. They're going to seek to understand and, and try to see as best they can, as best as finite humans can, to, to sort through the accusations and discover truth. That protects both the accused and the accuser. So there's protection. There's also the benefit of wisdom. Un, unrepentant, unreconciled, persistent sort of sin can be difficult and it can become painful and, and, and very hard to address. The scripture tells us in Proverbs eleven fourteen there is safety and, and abundance of counselors. No one person is intended to be prosecutor, judge, and jury. Uh, that's why the Bible frequently, when necessary, expands that circle of involvement when dealing with persistent, unrepentant sin, because the idea is, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate these sorts of situations and to faithfully apply God's word. The third thing, the last thing, and I think it's really relevant here as we've already begun to see, is there's the issue of testimony. The community gets involved when sin is public or unreconciled because there's a testimony value both within the community and outside of the community. The, the, the classic example of within the community is Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 addressing the, the, the sexual immorality that is being tolerated in the Corinthian church, the situation that is just they're, they're shrugging their shoulders at and saying this is no big deal and they're allowing it to go on. 
And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 is this is like just a little bit of leaven that's working its way through the whole lump of dough. It has this corrosive effect in the body because the more that you sit there and look the other way or shrug your shoulders, the more you tolerate this. The more you act like this is okay and you send the message to younger believers that this is apparently okay. We tolerate this in our midst. And so there's testimony within. And so the antidote for the body is to deal with the unrepentant sinner so that, so that others see that we do believe in the holiness of God. Um, in, in 1 Timothy 5, the, the issue there particularly is a, a sinning elder, and it says in 1 Timothy 5.20 this, about this rebellion one, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There's times that sin is dealt with at a corporate level because God intends for that to be a teachable moment for his people. And to say, this is not right. The, the body should read scripture and by the working of the Holy Spirit, come to the conviction that this is not right. That, that, that we as a body should not presume that this is okay behavior and just sort of ignore it, but rather by the holiness of God, we should live differently. But there's also the issue, as we've seen, the testimony to outsiders. Christians who are able to work but not, who are being idle, are now being seen by the community. And so much as the, the Millerites back in the 19th century were laughed at by those in the culture, some of the things that were written about them were not exactly complimentary about how these people were just sort of retreating to the mountains and waiting for Jesus to return. So too, we can imagine that in Thessalonica in the first century, that was not a, not a powerful message about who your God is when you are now able to work but choosing not to and rely on other people to, to take care of you. Um, so for all those reasons, it is not unusual for the community of believers to confront sin in their midst. And Paul's command to the Thessalonians was first to the body. You are to withdraw from those who are being unruly. That keep away from in verse 6, it's a, a strong term and it seems difficult for us. Um, the Greek verb was a nautical term for tying up a ship's sails. So it really does have the sense of sort of physically moving away from, physically coming in from something else, withdrawing from that. Now, before we consider what that means, you need to look down at verse 14 because he does elaborate on it here and help us to see what he means. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother. There's a really vital balance struck here. The ones who were being idle were doing so publicly. There wasn't really much question about who was not working. They apparently were not repenting. They were not turning from their idleness. But Paul does not yet proceed to the point of a judgment of what we would describe as excommunication. If you follow through what scripture teaches in Matthew 18 in terms of the discipline process of a, uh, a sinning, unrepentant person who is pursued first by one, then by two or three, then even by the church, then ultimately it moves to this point of judgment concerning the person's behavior. Again, I mentioned to you 1 Corinthians 5 and the case of sexual immorality. Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The aim of excommunication, disfellowship, however you want to put it, is to send that person essentially back out into the world, into Satan's domain in the world, so that they would experience, Lord willing, the torment of Satan and would see their own foolishness and their sin and would turn from that and run to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would want to be forgiven and they would want to know Christ and they would want to know the joy of repentance and forgiveness. And so that's what he's describing there, the, the final step in the church's response to what Jesus described in in Matthew 18, when he walks through that process, in Matthew 18, 17, says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The, the conclusion of the, the process in Matthew 18 of dealing with the sinning, stubbornly unrepentant, professing believer ultimately involves the local church making a judgment. I, I would sometimes call this an affirmation because it's not the, not the church necessarily um, declaring that person's spiritual destiny as much as they are affirming the fact that this person, by virtue of their actions, sees no desire to repent, will not turn from their sin, continues to persist in their sin, and that can ultimately only be the mark of one who does not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are continuing to turn from God's instructions and persisting in their sin, and therefore they are functioning like an unbeliever who is in need of the gospel. Here in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul's not to that point. I would suggest to you that he's at that point where if the church does not listen to them, it's really at the point now of you've been instructed about this work and idleness. You've seen it modeled. I've reminded you that this is God's command. And so now, church, now it's, it's time that you warn these individuals. It's time that you admonish them. We're not at a place of sort of putting them out yet and treating the idle one as an unbeliever because, in fact, he has twice called them brothers. In verse 6, when he says that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and then you saw it again in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother. We're not at the point of treating the idle one as an unbeliever, but we're also at a place where we're not going to maintain the same sort of fellowship with him as if nothing's happened, as if there's nothing wrong here that needs admonition. His actions are persistently out of order from what God has described in his word, and so he, he cannot be participating in the life of the body as if there's nothing wrong. He needs to be called to repentance. Paul says, keep away from this brother, take note of him and have nothing to do with him. The idea is so that ultimately there would be this internal sense of conviction that would bring about shame for his actions. And if indeed he proves to be a brother in Christ, as Paul is going to assume at this point and give him the benefit of the doubt, then he will turn and he will repent and he will say, give me a job, I'm ready to work. I no longer want to continue in this idleness. When he says, take note of that person, not entirely clear what he means there, except that it's some kind of corporate identification. It's some sort of the body being called to action and being clear about just who the disorderly person is. The phrase that I really want to just have you make sure you see is in, in verse 14, um, when it says, have nothing to do with him, I'm not sure the ESV is 
very helpful here. Um, this is not the, the best. There's a word that Paul uses there that means mixed together with. So we read have nothing to do with, and we think that means if I see him coming from 100 yards away, I'm crossing the street so I can walk on the other side because I'm going to be like, plague, you stay over there. No, what he's saying, don't mix together with him. It's really, I think, synonymous with, with what we would see in, in, in the Greek in koinonia and fellowship. It's not the same word, but it's the idea of, of being around and, and mixing with, having conversation with, treating like you always would a friend. And, and, and that's the point here. If one is going to persist in unruly behavior, then the congregation's responsibility is to warn. It is to continue to exhort and admonish and not to continue fellowship as if nothing is going on. Uh, the body's primary ministry is to help that person see the foolishness of his ways, to feel a sense of conviction from that, and to respond by repentance and following after Jesus Christ. Uh, we talk in, in, in the counseling class often about the word nutheteo, and that's what he uses here when he says to warn him, admonish him, speak to him even firmly, but in love as a brother, to tell him this is wrong. We do all that because we want to honor the head of the body who is Christ. That's why our work is unto the Lord. We do all that because ultimately our motive is to love the brother enough to call him to turn, that this is not the right path to be on, that this is not reflective of, of what God has done in your life and what God is calling you to. So, you come now to the end of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. It's a difficult ending in some sense to have this chastisement at the end. And yet I think it's instructive to us. How are we as believers to live, not only in a hate-filled, evil world that rejects Christ, rejects the gospel, how are we to live even in the threat of persecution if that happens and await the return of Christ? In fact, I think now we can add this factor. How do we live when there's even sometimes turmoil inside the body? There, there's struggle within the body and there are professing believers who are not living in an orderly way. And, and maybe there's that temptation from them or there's that what, what to do with them. How are we to live? And I would suggest to you that Paul summed it all up for us in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That's what should define us. When we are at the end of our proverbial ropes with the world around us, with the injustice we might experience, with the threat of persecution, with even sin infiltrating the church, Afflictions coming from without, internal trials from within, even with the temptation of following those who are being disorderly. In, in the midst of all of those, God's word says, do not grow weary of doing good. Know what the will of the Lord is, because that's how you know what good is. It's not good as the world defines it, or even sometimes how we define it. It's how God defines good. Know what that good is, and do not grow weary of that. That is our charge as servants of the King, that we would continue, even in the midst of pressure and affliction and trial and tribulation, that we would be a people who would strive to do good 
and to do so with the promise with which he merely closes this in verse 16. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. No matter how godless the world around us becomes, no matter how much uncertainty there is in the world, no matter what loss we face for standing fast for Jesus Christ, no matter if we are targeted for hate, our Lord and Savior is with us. We're not doing this alone. Our Savior is with us, and he is described to us as a God of peace. And, and, And Paul couldn't be more thorough in the way he says, may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times in every way. He says, Thessalonians, I know this is hard. I have been beaten and tortured and left for dead myself, so I I understand this is not easy. But the Lord never leaves me. He's never abandoned me. He's never forsaken me. And he is a God of peace so that despite the hostility and the chaos and all of the things that are coming from the direction of the world and from Satan himself, may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in every way, whatever you face, would you rest in his peace that he wants to give you? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that you are a God of peace. We can so easily be thrown off by life's circumstances, by other people's harshness, by other people's sin, by circumstances. We can so quickly become anxious and agitated and angry. Lord, thank you for, in speaking to young believers in the first century who were walking through such difficult circumstances, in your instruction to them, now instructing us that you are eager to give peace to your people. You are eager to minister at all times, in every way, a confident sense of rest in you. Lord, forgive us for when we are so prone to run from that peace, to not seek it out, to want to live in our agitation or our anger. But Lord, thank you for for being a God who still, still is with us at all times. Thank you that you are present with your people and that you are eager to minister peace to them. Lord, I pray for anyone listening this morning, here, online, wherever they might be, who does not fully understand this kind of peace, what it means to be at peace with the God of the universe, the creator and Lord of all. I pray that today, Lord, they would see that this peace comes from a a trust in Jesus Christ alone, that it is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying in our place and bearing our sin that he bore your wrath so that we might be at peace with you, the holy judge. Uh, Lord, it is in Jesus' death and resurrection that we have the promise that our work now is fruitful. It is an endeavor to be faithful and good stewards and that one day there awaits for your people an eternal rest, a glorious, worshipful rest in the presence of our King. Thank you for exhorting us again as a body of believers to 
be serious in addressing sin, to love our brethren enough to, to speak into their lives and to very much desire that brothers and sisters would speak into our own lives when we are disorderly or unruly in our actions, our thinking. And Lord, continue to pour out your grace on this body of believers that in all we do, in our stewardship, whether it's here on Sunday mornings or at the nine to five tomorrow or wherever we may be, that people would see in us individuals who work diligently, honestly, faithfully, not because we are somehow inherently good people, but because it is your, sa- your work, your saving work that has transformed us. And, and, and in our work, we want people to see the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that that would be manifest in our work this week, and we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.